All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I hope you had a wonderful dinner. You know, I do need to remind you that Paul did not say we should buffet our bodies. He had something else in mind, but uh, it's a wonderful time to fellowship. I'm sorry I could not be there myself. I was indisposed and uh, happy to be back here. I want to mention the books we have in the back that are available for you. And I think we're passing out the handout for the uh, lesson this afternoon. Uh, I have three books with us today. One is called Eternal Forgiveness, the Bible Answer for Lingering Guilt. Uh, this goes along with the message that we shared before. This is an explanation of what eternal forgiveness is in the Bible. And we only have three of those, I think. This one is the judgment seat of Christ and the Christian's rewards. I wrote this for the pastors in the Philippines, and uh, this was uh, a gift to them for a prophecy conference that we had. Uh, if you have not studied the judgment seat of Christ, you might want to read this. I understand you've been well taught on that around here, though, and I'm glad to hear that. This one is called Holding Up Holy Hands, a call for a ministry to the minister. And uh, this is uh, to encourage people to understand their pastor and to encourage their pastor and enable their pastor as well. Uh, the message tonight, Sour Grapes, which all of you have already memorized in that last 60 seconds. This is available for you uh, through Karen and the office. Uh, they've done a wonderful job on reproducing the book that I wrote on the sermon that I will be sharing with you today. Now... Uh, I want you to know that this, uh, all that comes in for these books helps our ministry, but really, uh, we don't need, uh, I don't do the book ministry for money, uh, I, I, I don't need your money, but the people I owe do. So, <laughs> so please help me out, because I'm in real trouble here, folks. All right, turn to your Bibles, please, to Ezekiel chapter 18. And we're going to study about sour grapes today, and I trust that it will be a blessing to you. Uh, I'm not going to try to read the entire chapter just for sake of time, but I do want to read the, uh, the meat of it, and we'll refer to other verses in the passage as we go along. Ezekiel chapter 18. Now, let me set the stage for you and explain what... Uh, we're going to be covering here today. The Israelites, the Jewish nation, had believed for a long time that they had the right to blame their parents for the way they turned out. In other words, if their parents sinned, they just reacted to their parents' sin and therefore could not be blamed are given the responsibility for their sin because it's their parents' fault. Does that sound at all modern to you? It, it is modern, and uh, it's interesting that it was a Jewish man uh, who took this philosophy and ran with it in a system of belief called Freudian psychodynamics. Uh, we, uh, we call this, in modern language, determinism meaning uh, anything that, or in other words, I am, 
I am, uh, uh, I am what I am because of factors beyond my control. Now, God grew tired of this, and this is one of the few times that I know of that he actually came to the end of his patience and said so. And uh, he told the Jews that who had actually codified this belief into a short little pithy proverb that is repeated three times throughout the Bible, but it was obviously very popular in the Jewish culture. So let's read having that understanding, starting with verse eight, uh, verse 1. The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, Here's the proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the fathers acted, we merely reacted. The fathers sinned, we merely reacted to their sin. So it's not our fault, it's just a reaction to the way our parents were. As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. And here's why. God is speaking. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. In other words, God says, uh, every person stands on their own responsibility. If a soul sins, that soul is responsible, not that soul's parents. And to underscore what he's saying, he gives three, the example of three generations. The first generation is described, beginning in verse 5, as a just man. But if a man be just and do that which is lawful and right, and then list about 15 major spiritual character qualities in this man's life, which I will not take time to read the list. You can do this at your leisure. But this guy was not an idolater. He was not an adulterer. He did not oppress any. Uh, he was honest. He helped people out. He loved people and so forth. He obeyed God. Uh, verse 9 concludes with, He is just. He shall surely live, saith the Lord God. Now he has a son. And this son is nothing like his father. In fact, as many sterling character qualities as his father had, he was the opposite. Now, he beget a son, verse 10, if he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, a murderer, and that doeth the like to any one of these things, that doeth not any of those duties, but even hath eaten upon the mountains, hath defiled his neighbor's wife, and then the list goes on and on about how terrible this man was, even beating others, killing others, committing adultery. All right, so we've already got a problem because a very godly man produced a very ungodly son. You with me? Now he has a son. Uh, verse 14. Now lo, if he, the bad son, beget a son that seeth all his father's sins which he had done. Now, if you read verse 10, 11, 12, and 13, you will realize the sins that this boy was eyewitness to as he was growing up. He seeth all. 
his father's sins. Now, any psychologist would tell you instantly this boy doesn't have a chance. He is brought up in the home of a wicked father. And, uh, any, and, and many Christian counselors will tell you he doesn't have a chance because if you train up a child in the way he should go, when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And therefore, if the child turns out bad, it's because of bad training. And so this boy doesn't have a chance. But God says contrarywise. Verse 14, Now, lo, if he beget a son, as he hath all his father's sins which he hath done, and considereth, important word we'll come back to, and doeth not such like, that hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. And now, uh, concluding in verse 17, the last part after a list of godliness in this son, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. And so God says, you cannot use this proverb in Israel anymore because all souls are mine. You're responsible to me. And uh, I am showing you from generational historical studies that a bad son can come from a good father and a good son can come from a bad father. Now on that basis, he says, verse 18, as for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence, did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. And what's the reaction of the Jews now? Yet say ye, why? Doth not the son bear the iniquity of the father? That's the question. Here's the answer. When the son had done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statues, and hath done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Now, Father, be with us as we study your word today. Uh, open our minds, open our hearts. Uh, so many of us uh, in this life go through unfortunate childhoods, and uh, so many uh, have been disappointed by wayward children. And so many uh, young people today are confused about how to deal with their feelings about the failures of their parents and how to take responsibility for their own, sin, uh, their own sins. And I just pray you would enlighten us today. Free us from uh, un, uh, unwarranted bitterness and anger. Uh, help us, Lord, to uh, be able to trust you with that wayward child. Help us, Lord, to be able to yield to you and that with that anger we have for parents, even though some parents are already buried. Work in our midst. Glorify yourself. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, a lot of confusion has arisen in my heart, to be very honestly, about the role of leadership in the lives of children today. By that I mean who is really responsible for their decisions. Who is responsible for their direction? Who is responsible for their destiny? Uh, 
we are told that uh, the parents are responsible. And unfortunately, we even have, I know of one case of a, of a child who took her parents to court for letting her be born. Blamed them for the trouble she had and wanted to uh, cash in on that misery caused by, their, by her parents because if she had never been born, she would not have the problem she has today. But this question hangs on the horns of a dilemma. Because on the one hand, the Bible says in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. But Romans 14, 12 says, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now that's a dilemma. And uh, we've got to understand how, how does this work? How can you say on the one hand, if you train up a child, they'll never depart from good training? And on the other hand, you say that every child has to stand on their own two feet and the parents will not be there with them. They will give account of themselves to God. Well, um, a large reason for the confusion is this concept of determinism, which has morphed into more varieties than Carter has liver pills, as we used to say. Now, we have not just psychic determinism, which Freud preached, but we have racial determinism, birth order determinism, environmental determinism, economic determinism, genetic determinism, chemical and biological determinism, and on the list goes. So now we have a growing list of reasons why we are the way we are apart from personal responsibility. And we love to have it so. Who wouldn't? If I can blame my parents or society or my chemical imbalance, if I can blame my race, my birth order and the family, if I can bring it on. And so the culture is just embracing this escapism and this philosophy, unfortunately, has left the culture and crept into the church. So now we're seeing it notably in the church in three areas. Child rearing. I have stood before my people as a pastor and I have told them that uh, you are responsible for all your child's decisions. It's your fault if they sin. And you know, I noticed something strange. The teenagers were very attentive. Uh, they just love to hear this because, man, yeah, I love it. I let them have it, preachers. So everything I do that's wrong is my parents' fault. I like this. You know, it's strange that those who will blame others for their failures never credit them with their success. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever heard a teenager stand up and say, you know, I just want to thank God for my mom. Because of my mom, I was able to do this and this, and she helped me do this, and she shaped me and molded me. No, but you will hear, I hate my mom. I hate my dad. It's our fault I have all these hang-ups. Well... The church blames the parents. The parents blame the church. Both blame the school. Christian school blames public school. Public school blames society. Society blames the government. Government blames the culture. Culture blames the media. Media blames the consumer. 
but nobody blames the kid. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? The poor criminals in San Francisco. It can't help being the way that they are. They're, they're dysfunctional and they've, had a, they've been victimized by their past and bless their hearts. Never mind about the victim. Never mind about the advantages they had in their life. And so we come to a place uh, when it's really time to think about this. <laughs> Let me read you this poem. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed, and this is what I discovered from his perceptive eyes. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in the trunk, and so it follows naturally that I'm always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and now I suffer constantly from kleptomania. When I was three, I suffered from ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally. I poisoned all my lovers. I'm so glad that I have learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. And how we have learned that. And so that brings us to our notes. That was all introduction. <laughs> now you're scared, aren't you? They all know what's for breakfast. No, right here we're going to cover in a, in a very uh, hopefully succinct and uh, uh, brief style the topic of sour grapes. Now, uh, you know what? Uh, I, I could use a glass of water or a bottle of water or just... Water in any form, uh, just to kind of wet down my whistle. Uh, our text is Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 2. You see that at the top of your notes. What mean ye that you use this proverb, saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? It is around the philosophy of determinism, the belief that I am determined or predetermined, to be the way that I am by factors beyond my control. Now, what does this passage have to say about that? Because I'm, gonna, I'm going to make a full disclosure, okay? Uh, I grew up hating my father. Ran away from home when I was 16. Uh, the reason I did that, thank you, brother, was that uh, my father... Uh, was not very bright, and I, as a 16-year-old, was brilliant. <laughs> I knew everything he didn't know, so I took it upon myself just to leave home, quit high school, uh, buy a car for $71, and take off into the sunset. Well, the Lord, in his goodness, you know, a man's heart divides it this way, but the Lord directs his steps. And the Lord directed my steps to Bob Jones Academy. Now, I didn't like to be told what to do. And I went to Bob Jones Academy when they told you everything to do. And everything not to do. Oh, I was chasing, chafing under this. And, and fortunately, about the second semester, I came to know the Lord. And everything changed. But uh, I blamed my father for everything all right I grew up with a bitterness and a hatred and I mean a passionate hatred not a passive hatred uh, and then to my horror uh, I, I uh, adopted a son who at the age uh, I guess of about 25 uh, was put on death row 
for murder. Now I've got a dilemma. See, it's all my father's fault. I'm the way I am. Well, that means it's my fault. My son's the way he is. Right? And I'm a preacher. Now, who am I to stand before other people and, and to teach and preach to them when my own son is wayward? And so I had, a, I had a valley of the shadow of death soul examination that God took me through. And I will be frank with you and honest with you. Uh, some people have taken issue with my writing on this subject because what right does Dr. Benny have to tell us how to rear our children when he didn't rear his own right? And so, uh, and he just went, he just went to the Bible t- uh, to uh, study this to get some peace of mind. Can I be honest? Yeah, I did. Where else am I going to go? That's what the Bible's for. So I struggled my way through it. I, 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 I wept. I prayed. I, I wanted to know, should I quit the ministry? Should I just throw it all in? And that's when God uh, brought me to... Uh, oh, there was a glass of water. Did you give me... T- oh, you gave me two. Okay. <laughs> You're a generous man. So, as I studied and I read, I, I, I came across this passage of Scripture. I was shocked. I've read the Bible a lot. I don't remember reading this. And, um, and as I read it, God poured the bomb of Gilead over my soul. And I had hope. And I realized then that as we're going to discuss in a moment, there's a difference between an influence and a cause. Mom and dad, there's a difference between your influence in your child's life and the cause of their behavior. And we'll look at that in a moment. But let's start out. We're going to look at three main points. And I'm going to try to be finished here quickly. But uh, actually, when I teach this in, to my counseling class, it takes, I think, five hours. So I'm going to try to mash this in like I did the Sunday school hour uh, session. But you'll notice Romans, Roman. Number one, sour grapes have a lousy aftertaste. In other words, uh, what are the consequences of determinism? Number two, if sour grapes taste so bad, why do we keep eating them? The causes of determinism. And number three, how do I wash these grape uh, grape stains out? The cure of determinism. Are you ready? You got your your seatbelt fastened? Have you called your insurance company? Have you lowered the flag to half mask? All right, here we go. Number one, sour grapes have a lousy aftertaste, the consequences of determinism. Now, in this passage, we're going to find that the very first consequence is a, a doctrinal distortion. That's letter A, a doctrinal distortion. Now, there's three key doctrines that are distorted in our thinking when we embrace the sour grapes deterministic philosophy. One of those, number one, is the doctrine of God. Now, I have preached for many years, and I have counseled for many years, and I have come to this 
settled conviction. I do not know of a single problem that I have ever counseled that did not have a root of origin in the wrong view of God. Now let's just take anger, for instance. If I have the right view of God, I believe in God's sovereignty. I believe that God is in control of every person and every circumstance of my life, right? That is, if God is sovereign, he's in control. He appoints people. He appoints circumstances. Now, if I get angry at circumstances, where is my anger really directed? At God. If I get angry at people whom God has brought into my life, where is my anger ultimately settling? On God. Because if I really have the right view of God, the right image of God and His sovereignty, and bad people do bad things and circumstances cause bad things, I am able in everything to give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. But, if my view of God or my image of God is so weak or distorted or so convoluted or so impure, I will begin to interpret things through the nature of God and call God unfair for giving me the parents he gave me. You with me? Giving me the circumstances he gave me which is exactly what the Israelites did. If you look at verse uh, 4, uh, well, let's, let's go to verse 25. We haven't read there, but let's, let's read now. When God, when God gives all this information to them, what do they say? Um, the way of the Lord is not equal. Look at verse 29. Yet saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal. God, you're not fair. You're unjust. You're unfair. Because we have believed all of our lives that it, it, the fathers eat sour grapes, our teeth are just set on edge, and it's not our fault the way, we are the way we are. Now you're saying, through all of that, that we were wrong? No, God, you're unfair. Now think with me for a moment. Be ready to go quickly, ABC. If sin is hereditary... And this sour grape says it is. My response is reactionary. Therefore, God, if you judge me, you're arbitrary. You with me? If sin is hereditary, if the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, if that's true, then my response is just reactionary to my parents. It's not my fault. Now, God, God, if you judge me, for something I'm not responsible for. My parents are responsible. You're not fair. So the doctrine of God is corrupted by this thinking. How about the doctrine of parenting? Uh, verse 2, again, which is our, our go-to place. Um, uh, the fathers have eaten sour grapes. The children's teeth are set on edge. And verse 19, Yet say ye, why? Doth not the son bear the iniquity of the father? 
No, says God, when the son had done that which is lawful and right and had kept all my statutes and had done them, he shall surely live. But if you believe in determinism, the doctrine of parenting uh, is distorted because um, there is a, uh, a misunderstanding of where the responsibility lies. Let me just tell you a story. Yeah, just put up with my imagination, okay? Sometimes it's like, it's like a loose cannon on the deck. It just bounces from gunnel to gunnel. But it, eventually the cannon will go off and it will do its job. But uh, one day in my imagination, when I was in the throes of blaming my father for all of my problems, I looked at all of my hang-ups and I decided to confront my father in my imagination. <laughs> Not in person. So, my father was a master sergeant in the Marine Corps. I wasn't going to confront him in person. So I took, a, I took a microphone in my imagination and I went to my father. I put on my most uh, uh, pontifical journalistic tone and I said, <clears throat> Dad, you know, I have all these hang-ups and they're your fault. Now, how come you were a bad dad to me to give me these hang-ups? And I put the microphone in his face. You know what he said? He said, well, Jimmy, it's not my fault. It was the way I was brought up. Now, let me just stop right here and ask a question. If you have the right to blame your parents for your hang-ups, don't they have the right to blame their parents for the hang-ups that called your hang-ups? So I went to Grandpa. What else could I do? I said... I said, Grandpa, now I got these hang-ups, and these hang-ups came because my dad had these hang-ups, and he says he has the hang-ups because of the way you brought him up. How come you brought up my dad to have bad hang-ups to cause hang-ups in me? <laughs> you, know what, you know what he said? Well, Jimmy, that ain't my fault. It's the way I was brought up. Are you with me? Do you see where this is taking us? To the garden. And Adam said, It ain't my fault, it's the woman you gave me. And Eve said, It ain't my fault, it's the snakes. And the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> and neither do you. Are you thinking? Where does this go logically? Where does it end? How far back do we have to go? Yeah, sin is sin. Everybody has sin. But after a while, the whole, the whole doctrine of parenting uh, gets skewed. I was preaching one time, and a lady, a mother, came in with her son after the service, after everything, dragging her son. And I think it was a son, I'm not real sure. A hat was turned on backwards. Hair was down past the neck. Uh, there was metal on every loose flap of skin. A t-shirt with some uh, awful slogan about God. And uh, pants down to the knees. Fortunately, shirt down to the ankles. And she is dragging him and crying. 
Oh, Brother Benny, where did I go wrong? I tried to teach him, and, and, and I tried to get him to Sunday school. Now he's a gangbanger, and he's on drugs, and he's dealing drugs. Where did I fail? Now, this boy, in the meantime, he is backed up to a pew, leaning against it, folding his arms with a studied, sullen disdain on his face, as if to say, rolling his eyes, will you tell the old lady where she went wrong so I can get out of here? And I'm thinking, what's wrong with this picture? See, God wants to put his hand on that boy's head. And the mother reaches over and grabs the hand and puts it on her head. And the boy who needs the guilt has none, and the mother who doesn't need it has it all. The doctrine of parenting is totally skewed in that family. And the results are tragic. But there's another one, and that's the doctrine of sin. Uh, I, I, I fear sometimes that, um, I think it was Carl Menninger, a famous psychiatrist of a past generation, wrote a book called Whatever, uh, Whatever Became of Sin. And you know, we live in an age when, uh, quite frankly, uh, we don't, it's very difficult to recognize sin. Uh, we don't like the name sin, we don't like the word. And so we've got uh, a book produced by psychologists, a thousand pages long, weighs 10 pounds, or 8 pounds rather. Um, and it has 440 Definitions, and this is an old one, of what various psychological disorders are. Missing in that group is sin. We have disorders, dysfunctions, we have dysfunctional people, we have victims, but we don't have sin. And it's amazing how it has slowly crept out of the church and it's almost like uh, if you need help now this is this is amazing to me if you need help to be saved beloved you go to your simple church with your simple pastor with your simple message and he will give you a simple little message that will show you how you can be saved but if you have any problems after that you don't go to that simple pastor with that simple message. You go down the street to Dr. Feelgood, who has letters after his name, and he's going to tell you how to cope, not how to conquer. How to cope. Because if you ever say, I have conquered, you're, you are in denial. A denial disorder. What's happened? What's happened is we have allowed this determinism to become uh, so major in our life we don't even recognize it. So that brings us to letter B. Not only is there doctrinal distortion, but there's convictional confusion. Uh, first of all, there is a confusion about personal guilt uh, because you just can't make me guilty. There's a confusion about the parent's guilt who's infected with the guilt of their child. There's a confusion with the child about guilt because they deflect it to their parents. And it never seems to land in the right place. 
There's a, uh, confection, uh, uh, convictions about personal sin, uh, which we've covered, really. And there's convictions about personal hope. One psychiatrist said 85% um, uh, let's see. Uh, oh, your, your children only have 85% hope, but they lose that by age six. So your, your chance with your child is 85% as long as your child is younger than age six, according to Dr. Feelgood. Now that worries me terribly about the seven-year-old, the parent of the seven-year-old. Oh, I've only got 15% to work with the rest of my life. This poor child. No, listen. That discounts that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Let me tell you, mom and daddy, that child has a 100% chance of total success if they're 7 or 8 or 9 or 10 or 13 or 14 or 108. Because the power of God is not limited by a clock or a calendar or a map. So don't give in to this confusion here. And of course that leads to visible deterioration. And, and that basic, let me find my, my book here a minute. If you will allow me uh, to read from some of this book. Uh, and that's okay because this is inspired writing. This, by the way, did I tell you this? My this book came after my previous book, was which was my bestseller, uh, "Humility and How I Obtained It." <laughs> it didn't sell very well. <laughs> In fact, my own family wouldn't buy it. All right, but let me let me. I, I'm joking. Let me. You know, I you know why I'm doing this. I'm usually much more serious. But you just came from downstairs with a full belly, and you've worked all week, and I've got to keep you awake. All right. The church joins the world in lockstep formation while marching to the drumbeat of Freud and adopting the vocabulary of the hopeless. It's not fear. It's a phobic disorder like agoraphobia, anxiety disorder, panic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. We no longer have lust, but impulse control disorder. It's not rebellion, but oppositional defiant disorder. These terms are right out of the psychiatrist's Bible, you know. Not sin, but dysfunction or a self-biased impulse drive. Oh, isn't that a winner? It seems that we have a disorder for many things we once called sin. How is one to come under conviction if he's a victim rather than a sinner? We have dissimulated, prevaricated, denied, justified, shifted the blame, bobbed and weaved so skillfully that the hand of God's conviction can't seem to find us at all. If he touches us at all, we convince ourselves that we're, what we're feeling is the residual effect of our parents' sins clinging to us making us miserable, describing their influence through a psycho psychologized vocabulary. We adopt words like sexual misconduct for rape, sexually active for fornication, infidelity for adultery, disease for drunkenness, success motivation for greed, pro-choice for murder, self-esteem for self-centeredness, a misstatement for a lie, a mistake for sin, and love for lust. 
until we stop justifying our sin by the language of the world and start judging our sin by the language of the word, we will never have revival in our hearts or in our homes. So what happens is ultimately, let us see, this visible deterioration sets in. And it affects the church and it infects the family. Okay. Uh, Roman uh, numeral number two, if sour grapes taste so bad, why do we keep eating them? The causes of determinism. Letter A. (coughs) The first cause is a philosophy is taught (coughs) as a theology. A philosophy is taught by theology. Now, <clears throat> can I say to you <clears throat> that your worldview, and you have one, your worldview either started <clears throat> with a philosophy and went to the Bible for justification, or it started with the Bible and was expressed as a philosophy. So we need to determine. Where does our belief come from? In this case, around the turn of the last century, around 1900, and this is, a, this is speculation now, and this is not historical, accurate historical research. It's only what I have come to learn through my reading. Sigmund Freud burst on the scene like a philosophical... Tsunami. We cannot imagine the force of his arguments and his philosophy and his logic that he set forth. Well, there was a preacher in New York City, uh, a very influential preacher, who read his teaching, uh, 1905, uh, his teaching on determinism, took it into the pulpit, and said, this is the answer, and he preached Freudian determinism from Proverbs 22.6. It swept the country. Pulpits all over the country began to pick it up and preach it and teach it, and suddenly a philosophy becomes a theology. And some of you were raised under the teaching that if you train up a child in the way he should go when he's old, he'll not uh, turn from it as a theology. It is not a theology. It's a philosophy. It's not even a promise. If Proverbs are promises, then then be honest and uh, take Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turneth away wrath. Really? Take that to the ghetto of South Central L.A. The guy comes up to you with a gun in his hand. Your money or your life. And you say, wait, a soft answer turneth away wrath. Oh, you had a hard day, didn't you? <laughs> well, after you pick yourself up off the ground, if you are able... Here's what we do. Oh, it was all my fault. I didn't have a soft enough answer. (laughs) So help me. 
And what we do is we forget that, yes, generally speaking, and I will, we'll go, we'll go, I'm getting ahead of myself, but generally speaking, here's a proverb to teach your children. Don't play in the street or you'll get hit by a car. Generally speaking, that's true. But is it a guarantee? Here's one. Go to college, honey, get a high school education and get a good job. <laughs> I can't even say that gener- if that's generally true anymore. But a proverb is something that, generally speaking, is true, but a promise is something that is always true. All right, now, let, let, let's get back to our outline. So a philosophy is taught as a theology. Now, let, let me say very quickly that... Uh, this philosophy of determinism, which says parenting determines the outcome of the children, has a degree of truth to it. Uh, but there are restrictions on that degree. For instance, uh, it is limited in its intensity. Uh, the Bible says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will also, with the temptation, make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So God says, yes, hard times will come, but never without a way of escape. For every child who was reared in a godless home and turned out bad, there are hundreds who turned out good. Secondly, it is limited in duration. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Which means that no matter how bad the monsters of your past and the monsters of your home and the monsters of your abuse were, that when you become a Christian, old things are passed away. All things are become new. And suddenly, God gives you, as a Christian, a Bible to guide you, a pastor to teach you, a prayer to connect you, a church to enable you. Everything you need for victory is given to you at the foot of the cross. So how can we say, well, I can't help being the way that I am. It's the way I was brought up. Lady came in for counseling one time and she said, Brother Benny, I wish you'd convince my husband what my psychiatrist told me that I have such and such a disorder and I can't change and he needs to put up with me the way I am. I said, well, I I can't do that. Because the Bible says that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. So, uh, and and, and finally, uh, this philosophy is restricted in finality. Because if you go back to the origin in Exodus chapter 20, when God says the iniquity of the fathers is visited upon their children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate God. And thousands of generations to them that love Him. And it's interesting that we, we create a whole philosophy around the negative one but say nothing about the positive one. It's a little bit like saying to your aggressive son who loves to beat his little sister. Now, son, 
If you will go a solid week uh, without hitting your sister, we're going to take you to Disney World. But if you hit your little sister, um, then we're going to have to uh, slap your wrist. Now, what normal person wouldn't want to go to Disney World, listen carefully, unless you really want to hit your sister? And if you really want to hit your sister, it doesn't matter. So if you really want to hit your sister, you can say, well, you know what? Uh, I can have my cake and eat it too. I, I, I'm, I'm okay. I want, nothing is going to happen to me. And we have that evidence as a result of this. All right, now, uh, letter B, we've got to move on. Where are we? Uh, a general principle is taught as an absolute promise. Are you aware that there are six interpretations of Proverbs 22.6? I don't have them in your notes but let me give them to you from mine. Uh, number one, train a child right, they'll do right. Number two, train a child according to their bent, meaning their propensities, their proclivities, their personality distinctives. You train a child according to their bent, and they'll continue to grow in that direction. Number three, if they run away, they'll come back home. That's actual interpretation probably from the father of a teenager. Number four, it's not a promise, it's a warning. You train up a child in the way he wants to go and you, you let him do what he wants to do, he'll get so ingrained at it, he'll never turn back from it. Number five, it's a vocational Application. If you take a child and give them a vocational trade and you train them with, to work with their hands, They'll never forget it. They'll always have a job to turn to. And number six, it's a general principle rather than an absolute promise, as we've already mentioned. Okay. Then, letter C, we see an influence as a cause. An influence as a cause. Oh, boy. I really got to hurry. Look at your back page, and you'll see a tree. Uh, one one of my Filipino friends drew this for me, and I think he did an excellent job. And this tree shows the difference between an influence and a cause in human behavior. Now, you notice the roots underground are all influences. The tree trunk is the cause. The fruit on the tree is the results. Now, everybody grows up with various influences like the family, parents, friends, media, church, school, and on and on the list goes. Each of those roots has a negative influence and a positive influence. My dad had a negative influence, but he had a positive influence. He taught me how to work. He taught me a lot of good things. That brings all of that energy to the tree trunk. And now, uh, Paul says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And now it comes to personal choice. 
you consider and do it not, or you consider and do. And that produces the fruit of the tree. I went to see my son on death row, which is never a pleasant experience, I can assure you. And uh, I wanted to clean the clean the board between us, and so I asked him, son, have I ever let you down? I think he was about 30 then. He said, yeah, Dad, you let me down. I said, how, how did I let you down? Basically, his answer was, you were never there for me. You were a pastor, and we would have plans, and you would go off uh, to an emergency room, or you'd go off to hospital or something and leave me. The fishing pole in my hand, the baseball glove on my hand, and all of our plans just went down the drain while you ran off with some non-family stranger. And I said, son, you're right, I did that. And I said, I want to ask you to forgive me for that. Will you, when you have time to think about it, will you forgive me for my neglect? He said, Dad, I forgive you. But then he did something strange. He leaned forward into the glass that separated us, pressed his forehead against the glass, and he said these words which made me as proud as a father as I had been of him in a long time. But dad, you didn't pull the trigger. Now think about that for a minute. Because in my eyes, my son grew up in front of my eyes and had the maturity to recognize the difference. Watch carefully between an influence and a cause. Yes, I had a negative influence, but the cause of a death was his choice to pull a trigger. Parents, you have an influence on your children. You have a negative influence and you have a positive influence and your child sits back and he considereth He can weigh your failure. He can look at your life and he can say, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to be angry. I see it as an influence. But the cause is my personal choice. You made that choice in being angry at your parents. You are making that choice if you cling to anger at your parents and blame them for your hang-ups. Do you hear me? And you can choose to drop it at the foot of the cross and let it go and live in victory. Your choice. And that's why God said, the soul that sinneth, it is, it, it is mine. All souls are mine. And every one of us have to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and give account for what we choose. 
I'm going to abbreviate the message for time. I'm already way over, for which I apologize. Uh, let me just close with this thought. Uh, years ago, there was a, a famous uh, football player, a college football player, who was asked to go with his team's scout. You know, a scout is somebody that looks for good talent and signs them up for the team. And, and so he went with the scout to a high school football game to help him choose some talent to recruit to their college team. Well, they were sitting there in the bleachers and uh, there, was a, there was one player uh, in the line, a defensive player. He got knocked down every, every play. If you play football, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, he just got knocked down. He got up, and he got knocked down, and he got up, and he got knocked down, and he got up. Uh, his uniform was torn and muddy and bloody. He had grass in his face mask. His helmet was dented. This poor kid looked like he had been through a, 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 tr- a truck accident. And uh, so, first time, uh, or the second or third time, the, the young... The, the young uh, uh, assistant to the scout, his name was Mike. Mike says to the scout, man, that's the guy we want, isn't it? And the scout said, no, I want the guy knocking everybody down. Now, there's a, <laughs> there's a biblical principle here. Be not overcome of evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. You can either go through life priding yourself on getting up after getting knocked down, or you can overcome evil with good. And I, I just, I pray you will, and I, I just hope that God will work in your heart. Now, I don't have time to go through the rest of this, but uh, I will tell you, it's in the book. <laughs> That's a dirty trick. <laughs> All right, but seriously, parents... Uh, let me just encourage your heart here today. I, I know that uh, I have been there. I have done that. I have paid the price. But if you're an adult here, you ha- I want to ask you, are you blaming your parents for your troubles? Are you guilt-ridden over your child's sins? Do you need to repent of a negative influence? Do you need to be commit yourself to being a positive influence, are you hindering God's conviction of your child? Do you need to teach your child to take responsibility? Do you need to trust God with your child? If you're a young person, I would ask, can you trust God to work through your imperfect parents? Can you thank God for the parents you have? And if you're angry, can you confess the sin of anger and forsake it? And for everybody, I pray you will find freedom from the bondage of the past and be willing to take responsibility. Now, Father, bless the preaching, the teaching of your word. Uh, Do a marvelous work in our hearts and our homes, our churches, this church. Thank you, Lord, for... Uh, your 
uh, giving us the freedom from this awful proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And may we recognize you as a sovereign God whom we can trust in every circumstance in our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.